In partnership with 2SER 107.3, the Walkley Talks podcast presents the latest episode of Fourth Estate. Fourth Estate is a weekly program about the media, featuring some of Australia's leading journalists, broadcast live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER 107.3. G'day and welcome to Fourth Estate, your weekly dose of media news and views right across the community radio network and... Of course, always on the podcast, fourthestate.org.au. James Bourne with you for the week, beginning the 8th of September 2014. Thanks for your company, providing me with my company this evening in the studio. Paul Farrell, journalist of The Guardian Australia. Mark Stefano, a reporter at BuzzFeed. And Nick Lazaridis, uh, correspondent for SBS Stateline. One all, welcome to The Fourth Estate. Thanks for coming in. Now, uh, look, we'll begin this week with what we've decided to call media accusations of viewer complicity. And this all stems from the execution of freelance journalist Stephen Sotloff by Islamic State. Now, like the James Foley video before it, it was made for you to see. And it also plays into another story of the week, which was stolen celebrity nude photographs that you weren't meant to see. And it's asked this question, and it's a question the media have wanted to ask us and wanted to answer for us all week. Should people look at either of them, and should the media facilitate people looking at them or otherwise? Now, executions, photo theft, the way the media's played it up in the last few weeks, I think our panel will agree, kind of plays to people's curiosity anyway. Is it therefore slightly hypocritical of the same media outlets to go and essentially say that people who view them are complicit in those crimes anyway. Nick. I, I, well, I, I just think that... I think that the first thing that we should say is the media did its job with the Jennifer Lawrence photos because we didn't, as a media, mainstream media anyway, publish the photos. Even the enemies at uh, News Corp, the tabloids, you open up to page three and they didn't... They just had stock images of the celebrities that were involved. So it was really admirable for even the lowest tabloids to not publish the photos. So I think that the media's self-correction in terms of these cases needs to be taken into account. And I think it was really good to see that when it comes down to it, we didn't need law and order enforcement and authorities stepping in and, and, and moving in on these. I mean, obviously, the threat of legal action may have been a factor, but it was also good to see Reddit, who uh, hosted the images initially, they were the one, or 4chan, but they were distributed on Reddit. It was really good to see them take proactive action and take them down as well. So in the nude photo scandal, I thought it was, it was a really interesting moment in our, I guess, maturity in mainstream media in not publishing the photos themselves. Is it sort of a case, though, of the people that want to see the photos or the videos are going to go and search for them anyway? How much of a role can the media actually play in tempering that natural curiosity that people have? Mm. I don't think we should be uh, restricting uh, people's access to these photos. I mean, if people want to go and watch them, they, they will. I think that with the beheading uh, video, of course, that was uh, there was no restrictions placed on in the United States, and uh, anybody that wants to watch those uh, beheadings can. In fact, I, I watched one of them. I felt that I needed to as a as a journalist. I wanted to, to compare it to uh, other sort of vile videos that have appeared over the years. Uh, similar sort of videos appeared in the Chechen campaign, and of course uh, in the early days of the Iraq campaign. 
I don't see any level of hypocrisy here with the way the media's handled this at all. With the viewing of that video for you, is that mm. something you considered within your interests as a journalist or something that you could consider as part of a broader public interest in the coverage of this event? I think both. I, I, I think um, I was interested as an individual because I wanted to compare it to what I'd seen before. I, I was also concerned about the stories that were coming out about whether they were false or not. I was interested to ascertain whether the beheadings could have happened on the same day, which apparently has been proven they haven't been. Mm. Look, I, I did a similar thing with the, the Ukraine plane crash victims before I went out on that story, and it actually gave me focus, uh, I'd have to say. I mean, it was something that I needed to do. The media's been a, almost, in my experience, trying to say this week that certain things are essentially forbidden from public viewing or that they're trying to forbid people from going to watch them. Who actually, Paul Farrell, does that forbidding? I think that's a pretty complex question. But, yeah. I look, I mean, I, I think that to start with, I mean, people really sometimes need to see some of these things. And, and I think that particularly with the ISIS videos that they are something that, that people should be confronted by um, and purely because they are, you know, this sort of object that has been created for a specific purpose by these these entities to induce these sort of states of fear and hysteria and things like that it doesn't mean that we shouldn't view them because I mean I think as Neil said they are really important to, to watch and to see um, in terms of who should decide you know who does and doesn't see those um, I, I don't think that journalists should play that role but I also for the most part don't think governments really should either um, I think there are some limitations within that obviously um, but at, at the end of the day, I mean, the, the act of watching something or the ability of someone to express themselves and then, uh, or, or to, to, to watch something um, is something that should be very closely, closely guarded. Um, and I think that with the kind of areas that we're in here, which are very different areas, but these videos of executions and, uh, and these, you know, these videos of people that are very widely available online. I, I mean, look, if people really want to view either of them, then then I don't think that we should be the ones to, to stop them and I don't think that government should be the ones to stop them either. Sure. Mark, um, increasingly, and certainly BuzzFeed's a great example of this, uh, online coverage of news is very much based in the visual, in what we can see. What type of decisions do you have to make at an organisation like BuzzFeed when you're covering these stories that have such a grounding in what the public want to see, essentially, and, and guarding against what they maybe can't see in the issues of taste. Those editorial uh, decisions which um, big news organisations make, they make them individually. It's an important point to make. You know when you were saying who are the gatekeepers? Um, the Guardian, SBS, Al Jazeera, ABC, BuzzFeed, they all make a decision when they've seen the raw footage. Yeah. Uh, and they make that decision based on a number of factors, and, and it can be... Uh, you know, past editorial decisions that they've made based on horrific images. And I, I found it very interesting with the James Foley video, the way that the News Corp papers handled them, especially over in the US, the New York Post was a very graphic image, which was the seconds before the execution. So the knife drawn and to the throat. I thought personally that went too far. Um, uh, we at BuzzFeed also thought that that went too far. It's setting the ground rules that you have and looking at your audience and thinking, what do we need to broadcast to broadcast the true nature of this story? Now, the BuzzFeed 
audience for a story is going to be very different to the Dateline audience for a story. You know, if, if Dateline do a deep dive on these videos, they should show much more. And they because sh- there is a an understanding when an audience comes to that story that they'll see much more. I think that um, titillation is the thing that you need to be wary of. There's no point in showing more to, uh, I guess, get your readers or get your audience off mm. on that sort of execution porn. And I think that my concern uh, as a journalist is not so much the way that the media use the images to titillate, it's much more with how governments and regimes around the world use the images to their own ends. And we see that all the time. The way that the Australian government uses images of the Sotloff execution and the James Foley execution to justify their policy steps. So I find it more interesting to analyse how do governments actually use those images as their own weapons of war and how the media has to play its role in, I guess, mediating those uh, the release of them now. And I think we're all three of us here. It sounds like we're all, I guess, um, you know, we're all about freedom of information. We don't want to see um, YouTube and, and, and those video sites shut down completely of those executions. But I think that, uh, getting back to your original question, it's about setting yourself the ground rules and saying to yourself, what do we need to do for our audience to convey the true nature of this story? Sometimes it's not seconds before killing, but sometimes it might be. You know, there's also the flip side to that, which you know sees media outlets use them for their own advantage, for their own campaign, for their own clicks. Um, and I, I thought that the Fairfax sites sort of saturated their coverage on the website this week with um, clickbait, essentially, for both those stories. Is there an ethical issue that sort of underpins the use of these images for these sites that really do need to garner clicks to stay alive? I don't think so. I don't no. think that there's a like. I think that you, in what gets clicks is good news. So it's like what gets clicks is good journalism, and I think that if you can find a way to um, present the information in an engaging way that people want to read, I think again you've just got to continually make sure that those editorial newsrooms, when they have news conferences in the morning, when you know a bunch of seasoned people sit down and, and think about what, what they should be broadcasting, that should be the centre of the ethical debate. That, that needs to happen. There needs to be a really engaged newsroom. And I think that Fairfax, as much as we can criticise what they've done in the past or whatever, I think that they actually treated the story probably better than News Corp did, because at least they did show it on the front page of The Age, and I think it was page three of the Sydney Morning Herald. Mm. It was at least tempered, and it, but it, it needed to present the image, because it needs. we need to know what is happening in in Syria and Iraq. You're listening to Fourth Estate here on the Community Radio Network. My guest this week, Paul Farrell, journalist of The Guardian Australia, Mark Stefano, reporter at BuzzFeed, and Nick Lazaridis, the correspondent for SBS Dateline. Uh, now, look, staying with this story about the execution of journalists in Iraq and Syria, but on a bit of a tangent, statistics show that today that there's approximately 20 journalists currently held hostage in Syria, that 68 journalists have been killed in that country since 2011 and that 48% of those who were killed were freelancers. This is according to the Committee to Protect Journalists. Now, the head of that organisation, Joel Simon, wrote last week that he now doubts the effectiveness of the routine practice of suppressing information about journalist kidnappings, which we've seen from governments, which we've seen from media organisations worldwide. Um, I guess, Paul, could you attempt to give our audience a background on why governments and media outlets would try and, and black out coverage of journalists kidnapping and beheadings? 
Uh, well, I mean, my understanding is that that would happen in circumstances where there are sort of ongoing negotiations. Um, there's a lot of backroom things going on, either through private entities or, or through governments. Um, so you can understand the justifications for that. Um, I mean, I don't think I would feel well-placed enough to, to be able to, to say with any certainty whether or not, um, you know, those kind of practices are redundant now. Um, I don't know, perhaps that's something that Neil might have a yeah, better tone. Yeah, yeah look, um, I mean, I think it's, it's imperative uh, when a journalist goes missing um, to actually keep a lid on it, um, depending on where, where it happens. I mean, uh, we had a situation at SBS several years ago where... Uh, a journalist went missing in Afghanistan. Uh, we thought that she'd been kidnapped. She actually wasn't kidnapped. But if we'd gone out with anything at that point, her life would have been in danger. She probably would have been kidnapped. I mean, mm. so I think there's a there's a there's a window there. There's a period of time. I don't know, of three days, seven days, but but somewhere within a week that you might keep a lid on 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 something. Um, because you're protecting, uh, you know, you're, pr- you're protecting the person that's that's perhaps been kidnapped. You're also allowing time for rescue operations or, or something to take place. But beyond that, I don't see any good reason for keeping a lid on these things at all. I mean, um, I, I'm not, um, you know, I'm not a big supporter of uh, the way governments, big governments, play this issue with. Mm. Uh, with hostages and ransoms, um, I and I, I think from my own um, perspective, I mean, I I had no idea of the number of until recently the number of journalists kidnapped in in Syria. If I was about to go to Syria, I think I'd like I'd like to know that. Yeah. Um, yeah so I, I I don't think that anything's been achieved by keeping a lid on this at all. I mean, in fact, you know, perhaps uh, their chances for rescue or or for some other negotiation have been damaged. I think the trope we often hear is that. Um Reporting on kidnappings and and killings and and these type of things is buying into the propaganda of the people who are perpetrating these acts. Is that a fair enough justification? I don't think so. I think it's again as as Nick is saying. I think that a lot of the times, the the blackouts that the governments want um, and that they're that they're trying to force onto onto media organisations, I think that it serves their own ends. And I think the issue is. In a world which is muddy, uh, not being transparent about what's going on isn't going to help the overall picture. So if you are someone who wants to go to Syria to be a freelance journalist and you don't know about 20 journalists who have been kidnapped in that time because there's been a blackout, it doesn't... It only, I guess, will, in the long run, hurt the ability for people to stay safe. Mm. Um, And I think the issue is sort of like, we don't want to report on X because it'll only encourage copycats. It's sort of like, you know, why does the media report on fires? Well, it reports on fires not not because it doesn't want to, you know, stop firebugs from encouraging them to do what they want to do, but it's because it's in the public interest. And there needs to be a point at which media organisations say, as much as this will hurt um, a chance for uh, a, a saving mission, we need to do what we do as journalists, which is open the floodgates and actually tell people what's going on in a situation rather than blocking information. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. I, I think that um, we really, we, we, you know, it, it, it's benefiting the governments to, to, to be silent on this issue. Um, there's no pressure from family or friends or, or colleagues. Um, and there's not, you're quite right, there's no, there's no transparency. Yeah, so it's essentially in conflict with, you know, um, the fundamental responsibility to inform when we're actually blocking and, and suppressing information. Um, 
do media blackouts sort of, I, I guess, help the groups that are doing the kidnapping and the beheading anyway? Um, like you said, is it is it making it sort of um, less transparent for those journalists going in, less absolutely. less aware of the risks? A- absolutely, and, absolutely. I, yeah. uh, it, it is it is helping them definitely. Yeah. Um, now, I guess a question for some of our budding younger journalists: Do these sort of statistics? make you less inclined to want to go to these war zones and report? I, I don't know necessarily about less inclined, but certainly um, more concerned about the risks. Mm. Um, and, you know, I I don't know how I would react if I was asked tomorrow, you know, do you want to go to Syria and to report? I mean, uh, and the reality is I'm really one of the, the yucky, the, the lucky you know, young few who does have a job with it, a news mm. organisation that will, you know, support me, um, and will sort of try and look after me in that situation. Um, you know, we're actually doing a hostile environment course next weekend as it happens. Um, you know, to sort of help prepare for the eventuation that you know you were in uh, m- more difficult situations. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I really don't know how I would react to that if I was asked whether I could go to something like that to m- and, and do that tomorrow. Um, but, you know, it's certainly... Those figures are very worrying. Um, but, I mean, journalism is quite... Can be quite a risky business. I mean, beyond Syria, I think there was 140 journalists killed last year around the world, or um, it, it's around that mark. And it's sort of, you know, fluctuated from those numbers from year to year. But mm. it, it, it is a high number, considering that it is a, a an industry that is not enormous around the world. You know, that's a lot of people that end up getting killed. Um and I think that you have to accept some of those risks if that's the kind of work that so you, you want to you, do. So you sort of temper it with the right of the public to know. So there's sort of a greater risk in big media outlets pulling their people out. Is, is, that, a, is that a real risk, you think? Well, I, I mean, I think, yes, it's about the public's right to know as well. But I, but I think it is also about whether a journalist wants to is comfortable with undertaking those risks as well. Um, you know, it's not like, I mean, I don't think it would be a great situation if you said, yes, we have to send someone to Syria. It's in the public interest to know. You go, you go, and, and you yeah. go. And um, I don't think it's quite quite like that. But, um, yeah, you know, I mean, if there's an important story um, in a place that is a difficult environment um, and you think it's worth taking that risk and your employer is happy to support you on that, then I'd, fine, go for it. I think it's, I think it's bizarrely the James Foley video for me personally, had a really big impact on the way that I saw um, my own personal trajectory. I've always wanted to report from a war zone. Mm. Um, the The video, I actually clicked off it at the point of which he was about to be killed. There's a certain creepiness and, and, and horrifying, bone-chilling moment seeing James Foley's face, um, this sort of uh, resolute, he knew it was going to happen, he, was, um, he had his head held high, it was just chilling. It was a really chilling moment. The the orange against the black when this sort of sparse environment that looked like something out of a scene from Breaking Bad. Like, it was this really, I guess, like, cinematic um, video. And if I didn't see that, I'm going and saying to people that I want to report in war zones and I don't know the risk of actually mm. where all the bad decisions can go wrong. It's also interesting, Sotloff and Foley themselves weren't working for massive media organisations. They're working as a lot of the times as stringers, as freelancers, and I think that that's very important in this story because I don't think you're going to see New York Times, Reuters, um, AP 
journos doing a lot of the work that people like Sotloff and Foley do. You see some of the photos of Foley. Um, he's he's essentially you know on the front lines mm. with a tri a single a single leg tripod and a, and a camera and a mm. mic, and he's really going for it. He's sort of you can tell that he's one of those people that if if he said to Reuters, um, you know, can I get a job and blah blah blah, Reuters would say, you know, you need to chill out because we, we 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 can't insure yeah. you because you're too much of a crusader. So I think that all of these stories you need. Need to tell them, and you need to tell, explain how they get into those situations. Um, and if you don't, you get young journalists, and you're 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 putting them on a track to get into a lot of serious trouble that they weren't signed up for. Because it sounded like even James Foley's mother, it sounded like this was a man who understood the risks, who understood mm. what was going on, and and knew that maybe one day he was going to end up dead. And obviously, that is not a reason to um to to say that you know the guy the, the guy had it coming or whatever. It didn't. It was just the, he clearly knew the risks involved. And if you don't, we don't have this conversation where you're getting young journalists and you're showing the vision of actually what could happen to you. We're actually sending people into war zones um, ill-prepared. Do you agree with that, Nick? There's a- sort of a side effect of well, the casualisation or the freelancing of the Well, I, I think that, yeah, I mean, I was going to make the same point too, that, that just about all these people in Syria are freelancers. I mean, the, the the BBC might get in there occasionally or some of the big organisations, but they won't let they won't let their staff go there. They mm. can't protect them, mm. you know. So you, and, and the same thing with Iraq. I mean, uh, why haven't you seen uh, lots of stories on Dateline out of Iraq? Because it's we can't get high. people in there and look after them. Mm. I mean, we had... We had one fellow in there uh, who was a freelancer uh, for Dateline. He he did a bit, but he had to get out fast. Um, and you know, it's, it's very difficult. Even just send a send a freelancer on a hostile environment training course. At the end of the day, I mean, these people uh, are in, in incredibly dangerous situations. Even if they had a team there, you know, um, it wouldn't help them much, perhaps. Um, so. I think with uh, you know with these, uh, w- w- it's one of those issues that really needs to be looked into. Actually, the mm. the, the fact that freelancers are there um, and not getting much protection at all. And in the meantime, we can just hope that uh, your courses in sort of hazard management, Paul, are suitable in the meantime. I doubt it. But yeah. You're listening to Fourth Estate here on the Community Radio Network. Once again, our panel, Paul Farrell from The Guardian Australia, Mark DiStefano from BuzzFeed, and Nick Lazaridis from Dateline at SBS. Now, uh, last week, a Twitter enigma was not quite unmasked, but uh, we're speaking about ABC News intern here, a fictional media insider with an enviable 25,000 Twitter followers. I think everyone will agree. Uh, Now, he was interviewed by Richard Aidey over on RN's Media Report, and he also revealed at the time that he's behind the Sherry 2000 Twitter account, which is sort of a difficult-to-explain parody of the Australian's media editor, Sherry Marks, and I've got some choice tweets here, but you can go and find them yourselves. Um, now, this takes us to a discussion about almost Twitter bullying in journalism. Um, ABC News intern said that he tried very hard to make sure there's no bullying or misogyny or bad feelings in all of his accounts. Um, has he succeeded, panel, or is there always going to be a fine line when you're spoofing someone anyway? I think he hasn't succeeded. I think he's fueling the fire, but I think that at the same time, Shari's a big girl and she can look after herself. Like, she's, she throws fire down just as hard as someone like ABC News intern does. And I think that the... 
The environment that we're working with on Twitter is an anonymous environment. That's the issue here is the reason why people are willing to say disgusting, misogynist stuff is because they hide behind constructed identities, which ironically is what ABC News intern is. Mm. I think, though, that when it comes down to is I'm just tired of, like, journalists just circle-jerking each other about about Twitter. You know, it's sort of one of those things where, you know, we live on social media these days. We live on Twitter. We live by our feeds and constructing. And blah, blah, blah. Watching people like Sherry Markson, I love, I love the Australian Media Diary sometimes, but other times it can just be reporting on each other. And obviously that's her job is she reports on the media. But the, the trolling of each other, the constant bickering between the SMH editor and the Australian editor and the back and forth, I just think it's not constructive. And I think that in the end, what they're doing is they're letting their readers down, they're letting their audience down, because in the end, no one cares about Shari 2000. As much as ABC News Intern has 25,000 followers, we're still talking about, like, if you asked any punter who ABC News Intern is, the first thing they'll say is, you know, what's Twitter? Like, the, the, yeah. we, we, <laughs> It's just in the end, what we're doing is we're just continually creating this churn mm. of spending time talking about each other instead of going out and getting stories, which is just what our what our job is and what we get paid to do. This tribalism that we're seeing between, or, you know, playing off against the ABC, Fairfax, News Corp, does that purely exist within the psyche of the media machine or is that some sort of broader understanding from the public? Is, is, there, is this just a narrative that journalists are buying into? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I mean, there, there, there's a few people out there that have uh, that are interested in this sort of sideline, but, but uh, you know, for the, I, I don't, I don't, I don't read it much of it. I don't get into it much. It, mm. uh, it's kind of a bit dull. I mean, I like ABC Intern occasionally because it it makes me smile, but um, other than that, I don't uh, don't follow the, um, you know. <laughs> It's part of the media wars, right? Like it's part yeah. of the it's part of the culture war. It's the it's the left v right, you know, progressives versus conservatives, mm. and the Australian at the moment is fighting for its life in this environment. It's trying to, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, like a young child, sort of bang its fist on the table and saying, "Prince, not dead," you know, and it's trying to make sure it continually has its audiences where it is. And it's very funny to watch because, um, as from people who um, don't are not part of that argument and people who stay away from it, it's funny to watch from the outside in. But in the end, it's very boring when Media Watch continuously runs stories about News Corp and the Australian. Mm-hmm. And Media Watch um, is at its strongest when it looks at the ABC, when it looks at a bunch of other things, and it's very very boring for the audience to continually to have the same topics um, thrown over and over and over again and there's no new information it's just a rehash of old arguments it's really sad it's indulgent actually yeah Yeah. Um, I'm not even sure I would put it as high as a sort of media war or battle for ideology or anything I mean I think more than anything it's just about ego first and foremost but what Um, about you Paul like you're quite active on Twitter and, and outspoken I know you personally not shy of a bit of a balmy have you had journalists go at you and have you gone at them yourself? Is is there a culture there amongst journalists to try and have a go at each other? Is it more supportive in your experience? Oh, I think I'm quite a reserved Twitter oh, user, okay. James. Thank you. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, look, if someone wants to um, call me out on an aspect of a story, um, then they can do that. I, I might respond. I might not. Um, 
you know, chances are I probably won't, probably because they're wrong. Um, but, you know, I Does mean... Does Twitter have value in that sense in terms of feedback? Well, it's just a public conversation, yeah. really, so that can be useful. But I think what we're talking about with Twitter is, is one thing and, and, you know, the sort of ongoing media war is a whole other kettle of fish, really. Well, we could keep talking for hours, but we are actually out of time. Would you look at that? I want to thank our panel before we go. Paul Farrell, Guardian Australia, Mark Stefano, BuzzFeed, Nick Lazaridis from SBS Dateline. I'm James Bourne. Fourth Estate, recorded here in the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Our wonderful EP is Isabel Summerson, and until next week, stay safe. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode of 2SER's Fourth Estate. Fourth Estate is produced by 2SER's 107.3 and can be heard live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER's 107.3, 2SER's Digital, 2SER.com and around Australia on Community Radio Network.